It's a future. Yep. <laughs> so we're in the last chapter of Ruth. Right? So we've gone from this family leaving Bethlehem, looking for food. Right? Well, they left Bethlehem initially, went to Moab, right? Dad and the two sons die. The sons got married, though. We're married for 10 years. We're childless, right? And all of this is because of the judgment of God upon this family. Right? And we can say, did God allow it? Did he do it? Right? Either way, um, he was responsible for it. In the, the other end. daughter dies well, or the other daughter-in-law. Orpa is her name. She returns. She Naomi's able to talk her into staying in Moab. Because the truth is to leave Moab and go to Israel as a widow was probably an early death sentence. Because the Israelites disliked the Moabites so much. They saw them as so illegitimate because they were born of incest. And so there was this feeling in Israel. And we've seen it, right, throughout Ruth 1, 2, and 3 so far. We're going to see it again today. It gets even worse, I feel. Um, you know, the, the Boaz comes and says, hey, who's that woman? Because I suspect those guys were mistreating her. And so they try to right off the bat say, it's okay because she's a Moabite from Moab. right? She's Ruth, the Moabite from Moab, who came back with Naomi. She's a widow. She doesn't matter. She's, she's less than a foreigner even. She's a Moabite. right? And so Orpah sees the wisdom in Naomi's words and she returns, recognizing she's got to go back to her father's house and be cared by her father and hopefully remarried. So they return. Naomi complains, right? Oh, don't call me Naomi, which is pleasant or good. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. I left full. I returned empty all the while Ruth is standing there. I have nothing. Woe is me. Life is so bad. It's horrible, right? And she does see probably that the two of them are going to die before they should because of starvation. Because who's going to feed a Moabite? But the key to this whole book, right, is that God is sovereign over all things, over all people. And God redeems his children to himself, right? God, and this, this word is important, redeems is you have to buy. Whatever you redeem, you're buying, right? So if you redeem something from someone, you're purchasing it from them. So there's something that has to be paid. And we're going to see that as we look at Ruth 4 as well. And God always redeems people to himself and turns them into blessings of joy. And we're going to see that as well. So let's look at this story of redemption. Ruth chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Boaz says to him, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So Boaz is setting him up. Right? We're going to see if... Because this man has right to redeem first. And then Boaz. So this man has the rights to all of Elimelech's properties that are now Naomi's. But Naomi, because she's a woman, doesn't technically have rights to property. 
right? Ancient world, ancient rules, ancient laws, right? It wasn't that they saw women poorly, but, but what we're going to see here, I mean, if you look at this, God is lifting women up, right? Above the station that we saw the culture put them in this whole time. And in verse 2, we see, And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz has created kind of a court, right? He's brought this other man in. He's brought the elders of the city. And we're going to see others are going to join as well. So then they, then he says to the Redeemer, he says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. Her relative, he says, not even husband, right? So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so the man says, well, then I'll redeem it. It's land. Who wouldn't want to own land? right? And when you redeemed it, he so Elimelech would have left. And when he left, he would have sold that parcel of land to his closest relative. And when you redeem it, you redeem it for the same price. And he would have probably sold it for next to nothing. So that's what he's he's looking. He's saying, hey, this is cheap land. I might as well take it. So I'll buy it, he says. Boaz says, oh, wait a second. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to pe- perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Okay, so if you're going to buy the land, recognize you have to also redeem or purchase Naomi or um, purchase Ruth, who's from Moab. Then the Redeemer says, oh, no, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So what he's saying is, look, I would, but if I take her, because I'm not married yet, She's my first wife. And if I take her as my first wife, my parents will cut me off because she's a Moabite. That's what he's saying. This is racism. Straight up. Right? That's what this is. These parents are saying, he knows his parents would say, if you marry that woman, then we cut you off. You can have nothing from us. This is how they saw Moabites at the time. Now, it says, This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. So they're going to give us some information, the author is, which is really helpful because if they just went to what happened, we would be confused. And so this is kind of how you, at the time, formed a contract and signed on the dotted line. To confirm a transaction... The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So now we know. You make a deal with me, I'm pulling my shoe off. So do they have to walk back to wherever they're going with one shoe? <laughs> do you give your shoe up as a signal? I don't know. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Milan. So he's buying all of their properties. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan. 
I have bought to be my wife. That sounds weird, doesn't it? To us, it sounds strange. To perpetuate the name of the dead in inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And we'll see how that kind of plays out here in just a little bit when they mention the generations of and who that comes through. You'll see it two different ways. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Okay, so Jacob, right? You have When you see the fathers of Israel oftentimes mentioned, they'll say the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is renamed as Israel, and from him come the 12 tribes through Rachel and Leah. Um, they have a lot of children, obviously, 12, right? But not 12 between them. Because, you see, they were jealous of each other, intensely jealous of each other. They were sisters. And they didn't like each other much. And when one would have a baby, the other one would try all they could to have another baby to do out, outdo the other one. And when they got to the point they couldn't have any more babies, they gave their handmaids to Jacob to have more babies in their name. Right? And so this is how you get 12 tribes. So I don't know if Rachel and Leah are definitely the best example here that she should be like. Maybe that she should have children, but don't be like them. And then they said, may you act worthily which he, we already know, right? This word's already been described of him. He is a worthy man. He's an upstanding man in Ephrathah, which is the area in which they were in, and be renowned in the city, which is Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, we get this weird name in here, we'll talk about it in a second, bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Perez is one of the 12 tribes. And Tamar is his mom. Judah has sons who, one son who's married to Tamar, and he dies. And so she marries the next son, right, for right of redemption, this kinsman redeemer idea that we've seen, right, that we've been talking about here, to redeem the the generations of the person and well he doesn't do what he's supposed to do we're going to look at the story of Tamar right after this we're going to look at it next because I think it's important because she's mentioned here right so we have Tamar and it's really not a good story at all it's really a bad story so Tamar eventually bears a child with Judah who was her father-in-law So we'll get into the whole story of how that happens next week because she gets mentioned here. So I thought it would be good to talk about her as well as the other women that are going to get mentioned here real quick. So he, they meant, because they bring up Tamar. There's no reason. You would never bring up a woman's name typically in a genealogy. Women were not mentioned in genealogy. Right? It's always the men because that's what matters. The women don't matter. Sorry at least in ancient right times. 
But even today, do we, we kind of do similar things in our culture, right? My kids don't bear, their last name's not Bran, it's Walker, right? So it, it's that same concept, right? We do similar. So when we mention a lineage, it's through the man. And this is just an ancient concept. And so you have this woman mentioned, and it's important, I think, to know who she is. Because for whatever reason, the elders chose to mention her here, and she doesn't have a very good story. Right? So, Ruth doesn't have a really good story. Is that why they mentioned it? Um, I think that's some of it, right? Ruth the Moabite. Tamar. Yeah. Right? And we're gonna, I'm going to name some others here real soon that we're going to see her. They're not the best of stories, but I think it's the picture that Jesus wants to paint. Right? It wouldn't be a big deal if he only redeemed those worthy of being redeemed. Right? But Jesus redeems all people. Right? He wants to redeem everyone to himself, even the lowest of the low. Right? Those we look at and go, man, I don't know about Tamar. Is she worthy? It's not about being worthy. It's about being chosen. God chose her and her story to be a part of the lineage that leads up to Ruth. Right? To Boaz. To this boy that we're going to have named here in just a little bit. Oh, we don't know that's coming yet. Sorry, we haven't gotten there. No, we already did our homework. Did you read it already? Yeah, so Obed, <laughs> right? Obed is going to be born of this marriage, right? And it's important to know that Tamar is in that line. And there are other women that are mentioned that are in this line as well, like Boaz's mom. Who's that? Right? She's not mentioned here. I don't, I know her name. We'll get to her name because it's important to know these people because they're important women in the line, not just of Obed, but from Obed comes Jesse, comes Solomon, comes King David, who eventually comes Jesus, right? And that's important that God put these women in this line of Christ for a reason. And I think it's important to look at them. So it says, Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her. Could be phrased differently, perhaps. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So she has this boy. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. It's interesting that all the celebration about this now is between Naomi and the women in the neighborhood, right? Boaz and Ruth are done with the story now. Thanks, guys, for being part of the story, but we're done with you guys. Now it's all focused on Naomi from here on. Right? All the celebration is with Naomi. And it's to show that look, God takes the broken and lifts them up. God takes those who are empty and fills them. That's his desire. That's what he wants to do. You are being blessed even when you don't think you are. God is at work. The women continue and they say, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. More than seven sons. She left with two. Right? Ruth chapter 1 verse 20, Naomi says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. 
and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? And the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Whoa, is me, it's so bad. Life sucks. She left with two sons, and they say, look, Ruth was better to you than seven sons. And this number seven wasn't like you had seven numeric sons, but you had the perfect completion of sons. Whatever perfection looked like in sons, Ruth was that. Right? That's what that number means oftentimes in Hebrew. That number seven, when you see it, it's the number of perfection, of completion. And that's what they're trying to say. Look, whatever you thought you left with, that was something. That was great. But what you came back with was even better. Ruth was so much more than you realized that you had come back with. And she proved that to be, right? So I want to look at somebody else who lost everything, right? Naomi lost, she lost a lot. She lost her sons and her husband. She comes back with a, with a Moabite widow, right? She lost a lot. There's no doubt. She felt immense pain. And in her pain, she lost sight of what was right there before her. I think most of us would have been right there with her. Let's look at someone who lost even more, but didn't lose sight. Job. <laughs> right? So here's the things. Job In Job chapter 1, verses 3 through 18, this is one day. In a matter of probably just minutes, it looks like, Job is going to lose everything imaginable. So he loses his oxen and donkeys. They're stolen. His sheep all die. Fire comes down out of the sky and kills all his sheep. His camels are stolen. His servants are all killed. Oh, and by the way, so are all of his children. He loses all of this. And this is how he responds. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. These were signs of mourning at his loss. He falls on the ground and worshiped God. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb. So he came with nothing, right? Into this world, his, his response is different, right? Into this world, I came empty, and naked shall I return. I'm empty. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is the one who fills us. Right? We don't fill ourselves. We come in empty, and we leave empty. We have nothing. The Lord is the one who provides. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then at the very end, chapter 42, verse 10, we read, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Interesting, right? Job's fortunes are returned not when he's focused on himself, but when he says, Whatever's happened to me is meant to bring me down so that I might see reality as it's meant to be seen, so that I might then be a blessing to those who are around me. And so he prays for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So previously, I believe it was two sons and a daughter. He also then had seven sons and three daughters. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons. Four generations he lived. And then Job died, an old man and full of days. Why? Because he didn't try and fill his life, right? He realized, I'm empty. I have nothing. And he let the Lord do it. Um, so there's questions about when Job is written. 
right? Job is probably quite ancient. Job is not a contemporary to Ruth by any means. He's probably prior to Abraham, it looks like. Most people would agree. Because we don't have... If something like... Because it was after Noah that they put the cap on the ears, right? Right. After... I think that's what confuses... Yes. Because that's right. written in Genesis and then... And then Job... The like, placement of Job is what is strange yes. and confusing, right? Um, and it's in... Yeah. And that's the problem that we run into. Gotcha. So Job is probably prior to Abraham, uh-huh. it looks like. And here's the reason. If all of this had happened to him and there was a priesthood the priest would have shown up, right? There's no mention of um, the Hebrews are not mentioned, Israelites not mentioned. Most books mention, most historical books like this mention the fathers of Israel, which would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. None of them are mentioned ever in the book of Job, right? And you would think that one of his friends would have gone, would have come and said, you sinned, and we know it because you have not received the blessing of Abraham. Right? They would have pointed that out, and nobody does. And because of that, it looks like Job was written prior to that. That's why the H. <clears throat> so he lives 140 days, and then it says he dies full, which is a real interesting play against Naomi, right? But Naomi, just like Job, saw herself emptied out by God but then restored, right? And it's always easy to recognize when you've been restored, but it's hard to see it coming when you're being emptied out. And Job is in that same place at times. He's very careful to not say, right, that the Lord, that call me bitter, right, because of what the Lord's done to me. He's careful not to go there. No, his wife encourages him to, because she thinks if he does that, God will kill him. And so she's encouraging basically to take his life. And Job says, no, right? I am the Lord's and the Lord will do with me as he pleases. And if this is what pleases him, then so be it. I'll walk in it. I'll mourn for my loss, but I'll look forward to the days that, the God, has, that God has for me. And that's Job's response, which is very different than Naomi's. So Naomi's story continues though in verses 16 and 17. And it says, Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. So she becomes his caregiver. Right? She is the primary caregiver for Obed. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. A little odd, right? Um, we don't know. We don't ever see this done. right? It doesn't appear to be the standard practice. Usually dad names the children. right? That's the way it usually happened. In most all of the scripture, we don't ever see like neighborhood ladies coming around and going, okay, this is how you're going to name your son now. Um, so this is, but we shouldn't be surprised by seeing something out of the ordinary because this is written during the time of the judges, right? Everything was mixed up during this time. And that's okay, right? Because even though it was all messed up and mixed up, God was at work. And that's what's important to see about the time of the judges. The Lord was maintaining this remnant, this small group of people who were after his heart. And that's these people here. 
And so they say, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And his name is interesting because Obed means servant. And so Obed is born with the idea these women have of serving Naomi in her old age. And just as, so that just as Job died, right, full of days, Naomi would die full of days because of Obed's service towards her, his care for her. She cares for him, but I have no doubt Obed then cares for Naomi and then does the same, I believe, with Ruth as well. And the reason I say this is Ruth is called a worthy woman, right? She's the only woman named like this. Except for another woman, because we get Obed to Jesse, Jesse to David, and from David comes King Solomon. And Solomon's story is unique. Solomon, when he takes, becomes king, the Lord says to him, Ask of me what you will, and I'll give it to you. Right? So he has the world open to him. And Solomon says, well, Then give me wisdom, because it's the one thing I need more than anything else in order to rule well. Right? And he, when he says that, a description is given to him. And it says, And Solomon loved the Lord. Right? And he served the Lord. He learned this service, I believe, from Obed. But he also learned it from Ruth. And Solomon writes Proverbs 31, right? Which begins, who can find a worthy woman, right? And it's a great-great-grandmother speaking to this child. And I believe it's Naomi speaking through Obed to Jesse to David to Solomon. This saying continues, right? And it's about Ruth, Proverbs 31 is. And that's, so that's all of this is right here, right? We don't tend to see all of that because it's not spoken of here, right? But it, all of this is wrapped up in this story. So then we get the generations. Now, these are the generations of Perez. It's interesting. It doesn't start with Boaz, right? It goes back a couple of generations, several generations to get to Perez, who was one of the 12 tribes. So we go to Perez, and it says Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The key is to get to David, right? That's why this was. So we're connecting David back to one of the 12 tribes. Now we're connected to Perez, who we know is the son of Judah and Tamar. So there's problems in the lineage, right? <clears throat> but this line is important because it's mentioned again in the book of Matthew. And in Matthew 1.1 we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So obviously he's not the direct son of David, right? That was just a way of saying he's in the line of, right? So I could be, so my, I would be weird. You could say my son is the son of Gary, but it would work either way. That doesn't help us. But in reference to my father, right? He's not the direct son of my dad, but he is in the line of him as a boy, right? He is the son of my father through me, right? And that's what this is talking about. He's the son of Harry. Yes, right? You could say that. So, 
in the line as we get, we're going to kind of skip around just a little bit. Verse 3 reads, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Right? So Matthew brings this out as well. That Tamar was in this lineage. She's one of only a few women ever mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And the fact that they're mentioned, I think, is important. And we're going to look at why. Not now, but later. Because we don't have time. Then in verse 5, jump ahead a couple more. And Solomon, the father of Boaz. Wait. Boaz by Rahab? There's another woman. It's not a guy. Solomon's the father of Boaz by Rahab. Why is Rahab mentioned? Well, maybe we should look at her. Because Rahab wasn't the best of women. (laughs) And Boaz, father of Obed by Ruth. Right? Most of these are women that, if you looked at their stories, didn't deserve, as far as an Israelite would have been concerned, to be in the line of the Messiah. They should have never been present in the line of Messiah. Verse 6, And Jesse fathered the Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba, I put there. That's not there in the text. right? So Matthew, who wrote this book, thinks so little of Bathsheba, he doesn't put her name. Right? <laughs> She's the wife of Uriah. And David, we're going to look at Bathsheba, but just as a, a quick note, David murdered Uriah to get Bathsheba. She was married to Uriah, and David steals her by murdering Uriah. Whoa, that's a story. And we're going to look at it. But what's important to look at, I think, is more than anything else is... Yep. Yep. And that's God's judgment against David for what he did, right? This is not a relationship that is appropriate by any means. But most of David's wives' relationships were not entered into rightly, we could say. And unfortunately, Solomon takes on the same issue. David had a problem with women. He loved the ladies. And the Bible says, the first thing, right, it says, he asked the Lord for wisdom, and it says of Solomon, And Solomon loved the Lord. And you hear this wonderful story about Solomon. All these great things he's doing. He's building the temple. He's doing all this amazing stuff, right? And then all of a sudden, his story takes a twist. And it starts with a phrase. And it says, And Solomon loved the women. And all of a sudden, he starts to marry Egyptian princesses and women he's told by law not to marry. And they bring in these false gods and he starts to worship those false gods and it's the downfall of Solomon and his story and from that moment on his story is a very sad unfortunate story the end of Solomon's life was had to have been lived in bitterness because of what happened to his life because it just falls apart it's a mess and the kings after him as a result are a mess. But God put these women who were the broken and the lost, the foreigner, the downtrodden, 
those who were unnameable even, and he redeems them to himself and puts them in the line of Jesus Christ. And that's important, right? And so we have these women, the redeemed, right? God redeemed Tamar. He redeemed Rahab. He redeemed Ruth. He redeemed Bathsheba. All of them he brings to himself. God redeems these women by placing them in the genealogy of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So I think it's important for us to look at them. So we're going to take the next few weeks, to be honest, and we're going to start a new series called Women of the Bible. And we're going to look at, we've looked at Ruth, right? So I want to look at Tamar. I want to look at Rahab. I want to look at Bathsheba. To be honest, I've looked at all of these women briefly here and there, right? I know their stories. But as I read through Ruth and thought about these women, because I knew that this is where, that these women were going to come up in the story, I started to see their stories very differently. Particularly then looking at the fact that they're redeemed women, right? Whether they're, um, they lie, are prostitutes, right? Practice deception. No matter what it is they do wrong, they're still redeemed by God. Right? Because these women, in their brokenness, in their sin, are just like us. And Jesus loved them. Not a whole lot. Some of them are... Tamar has one chapter. Right? But the story... Uh, Genesis chapter 38. So, you can read that. Yeah, That's next week. Yeah, Genesis 38 is where her story is. And it's a weird story, can't lie. It's a really weird story. Isn't it uh, funny Bathsheba's name Bathsheba? <laughs> well, that's what it wouldn't have meant that then, though. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our homework. If you want homework, yeah, Genesis 38. But God redeems those who recognize who they are, right? They see their sin for what it is. They know their desperation, right? God didn't send Jesus into this world to redeem those who were not sick. He didn't send them for the perfect because they don't exist. What's the rest of lineage after David? Um, there's quite a bit, yeah. I don't remember it off the top of my head. Yeah, most of the names you barely see mentioned yeah. in Scripture. So, yeah. That's why Jesus, right, in John 3, 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't come to save the perfect. He came to save those who needed him. Right? These women needed Jesus. No differently than we need Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Right? That's like Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave. We're, we're free from sin. We're not slaves to sin. We can choose, once God has put His Spirit within us, to not sin. We will continue to sin, but we have the power of the Spirit within us to overcome sin, to be victorious. You're a son, not a slave. And if a son, then an heir. Right? We're heirs with Christ Jesus to the kingdom of God. We're all under law when we're born. The moment we're born, we're under the law. 
God has expectations of us, right? Just do the Ten Commandments, <laughs> and we don't, right? Let alone the rest of the law. We don't even come close. And as a result, we're all deserving the wrath of God. But Jesus, but Jesus was born of a woman, God and man, 100% God, 100% man, perfect man. And he lived a life that was perfect without sin so that he might be able to offer himself up as that perfect sinless sacrifice to God the Father that his wrath would be poured out on him and not upon us. That God would be appeased in his death. The Father looked in the eyes of the Son, poured out his wrath upon him, and killed him. Shed his blood that we might be forgiven. That's grace. That's mercy. That's loving kindness. That's perfect love. Jesus' life was all about redeeming those who had been given to him by the Father. Now Jesus wants to redeem our emptiness, our brokenness, our weariness, and our pain. He wants us to realize that it has all been purchased by his blood, every bit of it. And that now we are no longer empty. We are full. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to fill each one of us and to seal us by his blood, to bless us beyond measure that we might be a blessing to all those around us, just as Obed was, just as Ruth was, just as Boaz was. We are no longer the empty, the broken, nor the lost. We are the redeemed, purchased by the blood of Christ, so that we might be blessed as sons of the inheritance of God Almighty. Amen. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.